they've always been here. They love humanity. That's what they both agree on, right? Like they both agree that they like living amongst people. They like drinking tea and mm-hmm. you know doing all these things. Um, and Talisker. Yeah, and Talisker, exactly. <laughs> and like I love that about them. It makes them so endearing to me and it makes them feel like they're ours, like as humans. It's like these are our angel and demon. You know, the rest of them all suck, but these are our two. Welcome, friends, to episode 277 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss Neil Gaiman's 2023 series, Good Omens 2. So returning to Good Omens, this is, you know, I think the second time we've done a project like this because of a sequel, it was one that we've done. We covered the book and then covered the first movie, and then eventually they did it part two, and we just returned to the movie. So here we are returning to just part two of good omens yeah. as an adaptation but we do have all the knowledge from the book it's been quite a few years now but we do recommend you go back and check out those episodes uh they're actually very popular so you know i recommend them it's still one of my favorite projects that we've covered yeah some of our most popular honestly they've done really well that's one of the reasons why when good omens 2 was announced i was like all right well we're definitely doing it um i actually went back and listened to all of our coverage um, cool. recently. So I, I will have that in, kicking around in my memories from 2019, a whole pandemic ago. Crazy. <laughs> it was another, it was another time. Totally um, different world. At the end of our coverage, we, uh, talk about the prospects of a good omens too. So I thought that would be interesting to revisit here at the top. Sure. Um, we basically said that there was some like rumors going around. There were some people theorizing. There were some things they did within good omens. One that looked like they were leaving the door open. But Neil Gaiman had said he didn't intend to ever showrun again because he was like, I I think I'm just going to be a writer from now on. That was really hard. I don't ever want to do that again. Um, So we were both like, well, if he's not going to showrun, it would be changing hands to somebody else. That feels weird. Um, We had some misgivings. Ultimately, you um, said basically you didn't think that it should happen, that you they should leave it alone, um, not go to a not go to a second season. I was a little more on me, right? What, what's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to check in and see like how you feel about it now that it is a thing, yeah. and and like how open are you to it? Yeah. So as we started this season, I'm I was still kind of skeptical, but I shouldn't have been, right? Like Neil Gaiman is still at the helm. He co-wrote the book. He understands yeah. the material better, as good as Terry Pratchett did, and better than anyone else that's still living. And I he has remember all notes. I assume I I, I didn't do a yeah. ton of research into it, well, but yeah. I know that they had they had started writing a second book there was Mm -hmm. notes for a sequel so he's going off of stuff that Pratchett wrote that was never released yeah so with all of those things in mind I think I was just so happy with how that first season turned out that I didn't want to like necessarily continue it without any material I've looked into it a little bit now especially with how many years have gone by and yes they did work on material they had ideas and they were planning a possible sequel leading up until Terry Pratchett's uh, unfortunate death in 2015 so all of that in mind, and then going into the first three episodes of this this series so far, I'm like, it's it's Neil Gaiman's voice, Terry Pratchett. You can still feel some of Terry Pratchett's influence there. Yeah, they're doing a lot of good things to 
recapture the magic. The cast is almost the same across the board. They brought everybody back. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. It has me giddy. I'm laughing yeah. a lot. I love these characters. I love the way they interact. And the humor, it's so witty, so clever. I just, I can't get over it. It's its so much fun to watch more. So yeah, my, my answer to the question is, I'm glad it's back. <laughs> yeah, me, me too, man. I mean, these guys are a warm hug, right? Like it's its just so nice to return to Aziraphale and Crowley. Um, our good friends, right? Check back in on them, um, see how they've been, catch up with them. How are they doing these days? You know, like I was just in for it for that. And it's like, really doesn't matter what they're doing. I'm, I'm interested. Totally. Um, it's kind of a mystery plot this time, mm -hmm. um, centering around Gabriel. We've only seen the first three episodes, so we can't spoil anything beyond that, but we'll try and kind of stick to them as we go. But just briefly, like the setup is Gabriel shows up um, and he can't remember who he is. He's naked. Naked. naked shows yeah. up at Zero Farrell's... Um, <laughs> bookshop and they end up calling him Jim and um, I thought it was really fun because what we talked about with John Hamm and how um, he was a massive fan of the book series and uh, Neil Gaiman wrote to him and said hey will you come play a character who's not in this book series named uh, Gabriel um, because all, all the angels and demons stuff a lot of that was added if you remember not everything but a lot of that was added mm -hmm. um, material and supposedly that was what a lot of book two was going to be about um, and it seems like they're definitely leaning into that. That's like the focus of this series so far to me. Um, yeah. And he was excited just to be a part of the project. And I thought it was it's cool to see him now be a more central character than he was uh, in the first first. Season. Yeah, he's great. I love John Hamm. I really got to just like give all our shout outs up front. I love Neil Gaiman's <laughs> material. Love John yeah. Hamm. I think he's great, especially getting more material here. He's very like a character that or an actor that everybody knew from Mad Men and then showing his comedic chops over the years. We've seen many <laughs> of comedic moments, but it's so fun to see him in this role. Uh, he's totally game for it. And then, of course, you have David Tennant as Crowley unbelievable performance i i love david Tennant. he's like uh one of my favorite working actors from things like doctor who obviously but then like broad church and some of his other roles that he's had um he's Jessica a jones he, yeah all the way across the board i've loved everything i've seen him such in, a creep so, in that <laughs> yeah and and to be a doctor who fan and know like the 10th to see the 10th doctor and just like know that the 10th doctor is coming back actually pretty soon uh to be a part of doctor who again so that's fun and then michael sheen is a zero fail like I, I gotta talk yeah. about this anecdote now. Um, Neil Gaiman was writing the the screenplays for these episodes. And with this, we may have mentioned this in the first season's coverage, but um, he started know. thinking about who should play Crowley, who he thought could handle the role. And he was friends with Michael Sheen and he thought of Michael Sheen as Crowley. And up until the third episode, when he uh, writes a scene where uh, Crowley's walking down the aisle of a church and then like, He's, he's walking as if it's hot sand on a beach and he's like and he's like his feet are on fire because it's like holy holy land or whatever and he was like I kind of see David Tennant doing this a little more like the <laughs> physicality of it and stuff so he kind of went that way with it and then had this awkward dinner with with Michael Sheen where he didn't Neil Gaiman didn't realize that Michael Sheen also kind of felt like he wanted to do his Aerofell they both were having this long dinner where they were trying to build up the courage to tell the other one and at the end of the dinner they're both like oh that's what you were oh and they kind of had this like this realization moment. So everything worked out for the best and each each actor ended up in the role that I think uh, suits them really well. That's funny. We didn't talk about that specifically, but there was a lot of talk about them as their specific roles and how they said that if this was something they did as a stage show, they would do nights where they would play each other's role. Yeah. They thought that would be really fun. 
And I was thinking like it would have been kind of fun to, to open up the season with them playing each other's roles. It would have completely confused the audience. They would have no idea what was going on. So I see why they didn't do it. But you could almost see them trying it with with how like sort of self-aware and fun the show is. Like it kind of yeah. knows it's playing games. Or if they um, like had like way. a body switch episode or something where they did have well, a chance to play each other. If you I think remember they... the end of season one, we did have that. They That's got each thought, other's yeah. um, punishments. They swapped into each other's bodies to be able to withstand the punishment. That's like, what it was. Yeah. It got dipped in holy water and it was because it was actually a zero fail in Crowley's body. Yeah. Crowley's cool. body. I, I think I got co- uh, corrected recently on a comment. So I'll try and Crowley. Right. Yeah. Crowley. It's difficult. We're not very British, but we'll <laughs> yeah. try. Uh, Crowley. Yeah. And a zero fail. Um, yeah. It's funny that you say that because I watched a, a panel that Gaiman and, and McKinnon, who's the director for all of the episodes we've seen of, of Good Omens, season one and all of season two. And a producer named Rob Wilkins, who I wasn't familiar with previously, but in hearing him speak at the panel, apparently was so close to Terry Pratchett's work and was a friend of Terry Pratchett that he they people actually refer to him as the voice of Terry Pratchett on Earth. Like that's kind of like this like joke that they have running. So he's an executive producer who kind of like weighs in as far as Terry Pratchett's voice is concerned in ways, which is I find to be really fascinating. Um, And so like having these three talk. And I think a, a few of the actors were there as well. And and Neil Gaiman mentioned uh, that he would love to still somehow write a play and have them swap roles. So that's still something he's out there telling Wait, so, everybody. So you were at a panel that Neil Gaiman was on? I watched a panel online oh, from okay. New York Comic Con, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I knew you were just at some Comic Con yeah, I went to Tampa recently, Bay right? Comic Con, yeah. Okay. I wasn't yeah. sure. Maybe Separate. they did one there. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool, but no, not this time. It is the season of the Comic Con, right? Like right at summertime, yeah. so... Well, I also wanted to bring that back to another thing. At the very start of our coverage, I asked you like which one of us was which character, and yeah. uh, you ended up going with Crowley, and I said I would be Aziraphale. I felt like, you know, in, in the spirit of the switching, uh, we, we switch it up for these final two episodes, and uh, I'll take on the mantle of Crowley, and you can be Aziraphale. <laughs> sure, sure. I wore white I mean, you're today wearing white today. In anticipation, so. yeah, so there we go. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. Like, I still, I, I think everybody feels like they have a little bit of both, right? <laughs> that, of, sure, of yeah, of course. A little angel on their shoulder, a little devil on their shoulder. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. I think, you know, it's funny to think back to me in 2019 being like, I'm like Crowley. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm here to say that, like, I I, uh, I think it'd be it's probably your life would probably be a lot more fun if your life was like a zero fails. I just want to talk about uh, for people who maybe didn't listen to our, our first season's coverage, which we I do recommend that you do. But like a refresher for me as well. In 1989, a year before the completed novel was published, Gaiman and Pratchett visited the U.S. for the World Fantasy Convention in Seattle, and they shared a hotel room to save money. Unable to sleep at night due to jet lag and not having anything else to talk about, they started plotting out the sequel to Good Omens. That, that's serendipitous. I literally just booked my ticket to World Fantasy this year. <laughs> nice. Are you going to possibly be staying with somebody uh, to save money in a hotel room? Could happen. There you go. You're going <laughs> to we'll write a, a hit novel in that, or at least come I up with I do know idea. some other writers who are going. There you go. So 668, <laughs> The Neighbor of the Beast, was slated as the sequel's title, but after Gaiman moved to the United States, Pratchett expressed doubt that a sequel would be written. Gaiman later affirmed this in one of his essays, titled Terry Pratchett and Appreciation. Pratchett died in 2015. In 2017, Gaiman revealed as part of the filming of the television series based on the book that he and Pratchett had done some plotting for the sequel, including that, quote, there would have been a lot of angels in the sequel, one of whom was Gabriel, who was briefly mentioned in Good Omens, but was figured more prominently in the TV show. When asked if Neil had any plans on releasing a sequel to Good Omens or maintaining its status as a standalone work, Gaiman stated that 
there was a plot for one that Pratchett wanted to be told, but whether or not it would be made would depend on certain factors. So obviously now we're here. It's never going, it as me. far as I can tell, it won't be released as a novel, but we're getting the continuation of the story and possibly some of the elements that Terry Pratchett himself worked on alongside Neil Gaiman. So I just think, and I do remember from our previous years cover, or, or years ago coverage, Terry Pratchett's dying wish to Neil Gaiman was to try to get Good Omens adapted. Yes. And to, to carry the flame for someone like that, I, I have so much respect for Neil Gaiman and I love his work, but to see a friendship like that, to see him seeing this to completion, being a showrunner again uh, for season two and and like kind of having that full circle completed. Like I just, I think that's so cool. And, and it's the kind of, it's the magic of storytelling that we can still, we can still have some sort of connection with Terry Pratchett with new material in that way. Yeah. And we talked about this last time and, and I think there was a bit of a debate at the end of our final episode about, is it kind of a betrayal to produce the second season um, and I think we've kind of outlined the reasons why it's, why it's not, but I think that's also why there's not going to be a second book, because to me, Pratchett's contribution is directly as a book, right? And the adaptation is always going to be separate in a way. Um, it, from, from its um, early stages, it was always Neil Gaiman. So it feels better to me to like continue the show but leave the book as a standalone thing like the book is always now going to be a standalone thing and i think that feels appropriate to me since it would feel weirder for neil gaiman to come out and and release the scene to see an adaptation process like this as well with we talk about this all the time weekly honestly for the last five or six years so uh the idea of seeing uh someone write a novel alongside someone else and then go on and be a showrunner and head writer of every episode of the show to see the level of control that Neil Gaiman is has over this and then to hear his voice and a sense of humor in in the dialogue and in the scenes yeah. and the the way that the show is funny but it's not like cracking jokes in your face it's just like situationally funny it's, it's so clever yeah. and i just i love it for that and and it's really it's, a, an interesting analysis on adaptation here because it's he like to kind of be in this position in his career to be able to even do this right like yeah. to have the sort of cachet to be like no you know i'm gonna show run this thing myself um they, they yeah they i don't think of studios would be signing off on many authors to do that right and we talked about uh in our previous coverage how they were kind of writing the novel simultaneously they would write like different scenes and alternate how they yeah. were writing it, kind of sending notes to we each went other. We into a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was very so I, I, thinking about that, I, I, you know, I think that they're like the ownership of this novel is I think people want to say like now that Neil Gaiman has run with it for such a long time and he's adapted it like it's Neil Gaiman's Good Omens. But it's always I think what's cool is that Neil Gaiman's always doing it in service of Terry Pratchett and his voice and what he, I'm sure he has like that Terry Pratchett voice in his head trying to balance that out and and do good by him. So this is probably a good time to move into episode one, which is called The Arrival. Uh, all these episodes are directed by Douglas McKinnon, uh, and shout out to him as well, because I think he has a really good sense of what's going on in, in the story, and I think that he brings a lot to this as well. As much as Neil Gaiman's voice is here, Douglas McKinnon's doing a lot to work alongside the actors and bring the vision to life, and and I think it is a fun one and interesting visually and, and um, in ways that 
TV shows often struggle with. Like he does some cool effects and it do, it looks a little hokey sometimes, but almost by design. Uh, like when Crowley's car is driving down the road, it's like meant to look kind of weird and janky because he's like breaking the laws of physics almost or something. Yeah. So well, it's, also it's we cool. talked about in our last coverage that the the Bentley, I think it is that they had could only go 30 miles an hour. <laughs> so yeah. in order to make it look like it's going fast, they have to like do a sped up thing to make it look like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's working. I think I think it's cool. It gives kind of a visual texture to this show that makes it feel unique. McKinnon w- has worked alongside uh, David Tennant quite a bit as well because he directed a few episodes of Doctor Who. And I think he 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 joked on the panel that I was listening to uh, from New York Comic Con about how he believes that he is the director who's worked with David Tennant the most. So he knows him very well. And, and I think <laughs> it's really cool to see them working together. Anyway, episode one is called The Arrival directed by Douglas McKinnon, written by Neil Gaiman and John Finnamore. In the beginning, the angel Crowley creates the universe, but grows deeply disappointed when the angel Aziraphale informs him that his creation is intended merely for the entertainment of humans and will be destroyed in 6,000 years. In modern times, the archangel Gabriel arrives naked and without any memories to Aziraphale's shop, carrying only a large box with a fly inside. Meanwhile, up in heaven, Gabriel has disappeared, and both heaven and hell are eager to find him. Aziraphale and Crowley perform a miracle to hide Gabriel from heaven and hell, but accidentally tip off heaven to the location of Gabriel. So we started off again with another bit of creation. This time it is more of like a cosmological, like we're creating the universe, whereas last time it was Garden of Eden. Um, and it provides a, a kind of an interesting like mirrored story. It's a little different, kind of counter in some ways. Um I love, you know, the whole thing where Crowley's like creating this universe and he's so proud of what he's done. And this is he's still an angel at this point. And he's like, look at this. This is great. And then, yeah, Xerophil shows up with the bad news about how this is all in service to to humans who just are going to look up at it and be like, well, look how pretty that is. Yeah. <laughs> I, these so kinds funny. of scenes are why I love the show, too. Like we're yeah. getting to see. The creation of the universe and the way that it's playing with the clever joke and the way that like if you see it from the perspective of gods, angels and demons, uh, everything seems like it's kind of for nothing. We get into it yeah. with the Job story as well. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's God has a plan, God's word and God, all everything's according to his plan. But then it's like sometimes it's like, well, what's the motivation here? Like what? How yeah. does that benefit anybody other than like so himself or? What does that it mean? That was a big thing in the first season too, when with the flood, like uh, Aziraphale, um is is has to you know um, struggle with the idea that God's gonna like murder all these children and people and innocents, and mm-hmm. um, and then he's like, but they're gonna give him a rainbow at the end. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, I love these. It's funny that that he at some point falls right between because he's an angel here, but in the Garden of Eden, he's already a demon. Right. So yeah. questioning, he's like asking questions at the end of this, and he's like, "Ah, it can't be too bad to ask some questions, right?" And Zerfell looks at him like, mm. "That was the big, that was the big sort of reveal here is that it's like, you know, what does it mean to to question?" And I just want to talk about it. I'm sure that we touched on some of this in our in our coverage back then, but uh, the idea of free will, and so if this is all according sure. to God's plan and all that other stuff, it's all predetermined, but he's created characters in Zerfell and Crowley that have free will. You know, Crowley first and then Aziraphale expresses more of that as time goes on. And does that mean it's all according to his plan? I think that's how the show cleverly tries to say. And that's how I think religious people would say as well. It all ties back together is anything you do is God's plan, even though that you feel that you have some agency. And that's what 
Crowley and Aziraphale are doing here, and even when it comes to like Job or the Flood, things like that, to, to jump ahead to the Job stuff, they turn the children into lizards instead of murdering his kids, and then they bring yeah. them back, and then they make it seem like it's like uh, new children. And in that way, like the lessons are learned, I guess, quote unquote, but still Aziraphale and Crowley are like making the world a better place. And, it, you know, yeah. and then and then they all explain it as God's plan. It really underlines for me how, and this is true in the last book, in, in, in the book itself, I guess, and it's true in the first season, but this is really underlining for me how m- much Aziraphale and Crowley have affected human history and mm-hmm. the way humanity has come up, and they have been the sort of like angel, the only angel and demon that are like truly on humanity's side. And they've like been here all along and like lived through it with us in a way that otherwise heaven and hell doesn't. They're so distant and disconnected from it. They don't really know what's going on. They don't understand yeah. how humans live. Whereas like they've always been here. They love humanity. That's what they both agree on, right? Like they both agree that they like living amongst people. They like drinking tea and, mm-hmm. you know, doing all these things. Um, and Talisker. Yeah, and Talisker, exactly. <laughs> And, like, I love that about them. It makes them so endearing to me, and it makes them feel like they're ours. Like, as humans, it's like, these are our angel and demon. You know, the yeah. rest of them all suck, but these are our two. Yeah. They also, like, pit themselves against um, the rest of the angels and stuff. And, like, everybody, and which is kind of why I like that we're now getting, in the third episode, we're getting an angel that doesn't seem like they're inherently bad. Because, like, up to this point, all the angels and all the demons have seemed, like, just straight-up evil, other than Crowley and Aziraphale. Um, yeah, and I don't know what the commentary being made there is, but I don't think it's great for religion in general. You know? and, and we noticed this in the last one. It's like heaven's almost just as bad as hell, and I think yeah. that they're definitely saying something there. It's just like Organized they're very self righteous and yeah. and unwilling to. They're unyielding and don't see any nuance in anything. And yeah, yeah they're kind of assholes because of that. Um, yeah. yeah, totally what they're playing at there. Um, so speaking of the setup, we already touched on John Hamm showing up naked. I definitely noticed the fly. It flies out very prominently. Yeah. They even mention it another time later. We, as of yet, don't know what the fly is. It seems to me like this is going to be maybe a character who's going to pop up. It's so clearly connected to Beelzebub to me. Like, there's no way it couldn't be, right? But didn't we see Beelzebub in this at one point? Yeah. And, and um, it's got a new face now and like... So you're thinking Beelzebub is maybe not letting on everything that they know? Some sort of spy, something yeah. something like that related to Beelzebub. Could be, or another demon. Maybe just like demons in general. Like it could be another demon that yeah. is connected to a fly. Probably probably has to do with the devil. something, you know, I think Gabriel got up to something. Yeah. One of the interesting things is like in the first, the first book is all about an apocalypse surrounding this like swap of a baby right antichrist. Like mix up and we have yeah. the antichrist and it's adam instead of uh warlock and um it's this like foretold end of days that is going to come when the antichrist arrives and they have to turn they have to stop it to save humanity and we know from the jump that that's the looming threat but here we it's just a mystery it's like why is michael here he doesn't remember anything it seems like it's probably significant and probably really bad yeah gabriel right so it's yeah. a very different feel but it's kind of cool that they didn't go right back to the well of the same kind of setup and they instead I was, went with this slightly more mis- mystery oriented thing i think in my 
you know, when I said I was kind of hoping they wouldn't do anymore and kind of leave it lying, I assumed that they would, like you said, go back to the well, bring back the Antichrist in some way, kind of rehash some of the story. I like that it's very disconnected in that way. I kind of don't think we're going to see the Antichrist at all. Maybe maybe a cameo. Maybe Adam will show up for something. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious not, to see how many, because there's so many sub characters. That was one of the things listening back to our coverage. I was like, wow, I forgot how many characters were in this thing. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how many of them we will see again. Um, because we've seen a lot of the heaven and hell types, right? But not a lot of the people who are on Earth. Like there was like witch, there was you know prophets, there were witch hunters, there were all kinds of human characters that yeah. so far haven't shown up. So you bring you make a great point too. Just in in, I talked before about how like they brought back most of the cast. I don't just mean John Hamm, David Tennant, and Michael Sheen. They brought back Madame Tracy, Miranda Richardson, who played Madame Tracy, now plays Shax, who is the new demon that's replaced Crowley on uh... Earth. Okay. And then Sister Mary Loquacious from from the original series is Nina, who owns the coffee shop. Oh, okay. So they've taken the actors, brought them back in. So the faces roles. are familiar. Yeah. So and then and then the other one is Sister Teresa Garrulus is Maggie, who is the record shop owner. Okay. Yeah. And we got to talk about that because there was a line. She was getting so much flack, and there's I think it's uh, the the coffee shop owner Nina who says. Nobody buys records anymore. What are you doing trying to sell those? And I just felt you being like, no. <laughs> yeah. You got, you'd be collecting them, right? Vinyl. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think that there's And you're something... not alone. People do it. No, it's huge. It's it's like growing and growing and growing in popularity for sure. Uh, yeah. Again. But I think it's, you know, I love tactile. I like physical media. I like to have the thing so that I know it's never going to go totally. anywhere. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of that shit's just it, disappearing. Yeah. So, so like holding on to the things that I love and, um, yeah, just, there's something, I love the physical nature of like putting a record on. So I don't think you're ever going to get away from that. It's like, um, it's like a way to like, rather than pushing a button, you're getting to like interact with the art in yeah. ways and stuff. So I just, I, I just know. thought it was funny how much they were like hammering home that this is a dead, dead medium and well, no one uses Gaiman. it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And it's Gaiman saying like, that's a ridiculous point of view, obviously. Yeah. He's, I mean, this is a man who writes longhand in yeah. like leather bound journals and right. stuff, right? He introduces a character that owns a record shop. Like, I don't think he's, a, yeah. he's you know, I think he's for records. Um, and totally. so, you know, it's cool that, that it comes back around to in the story in the way that like the clue, uh, which brings me back to the Gabriel stuff I wanted to mention. Gabriel, I think my if I was to theorize, I think Gabriel got up to some hijinks with a demon or something like that. And that's sort of, created a rift in that in that specific bar something happened went down in that bar i think between mm. gabriel and some other entity and it somehow blocked his memories and all that other stuff so we'll see we'll see where it's going but yeah i mean i guess we did get a scene like a flash of beelzebub acting strange mm -hmm. and saying something like you know wouldn't it be nice if someone told you you were doing a good job remember that yeah and I was like, what is this scene? Maybe that's a hint that like it, maybe it was Beelzebub and like Beelzebub doesn't remember something too. That would be cool. Yeah. And then, you know, characters have asked Beelzebub why they're acting uh, differently in ways and stuff as well. Why are you being so nice or whatever? So I think we're onto something there. Uh, and then the fly, obviously, with the package that he delivered. Like there's I think we're seeing some some of what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing that happens in the first episode is they perform the miracle which I, yeah. I think that's fun to think about them performing half a miracle and yeah, half like, a miracle. Yeah, like, let's just do a little half miracle. Yeah. It'll, be, it'll be completely under the radar, and then it's, like, massive, right? Right. Because, you know, the, their power combined is actually probably way yeah. more powerful than either of them would have been on which, their own. Which, 
uh, you know, and I, I know that the, the fan fiction's out there. We probably even touched on it in our previous coverage. But, like, the love story that's going on between these two people is so potent and evident. That's in my notes of something to re to bring back up because in our episode, we had a, a pretty lengthy conversation about it and how in the books it said that because they are an angel, an angel and a demon, they like don't have reproductive organs and they're not they don't are like, like sexually attracted to people. Um, so we were kind of like, well, that's one argument for just having it be sort of a platonic friendship um, that is very deep but how um, the new adaptation felt like an opportunity maybe to lean into the representation of it and have it actually be a romance um, and how it, when it became clear when we finished the series, they didn't really quite to do that. They hinted at it. They, you know, there's a lot of hinting at it, but they never quite went that far. Um, we ultimately felt like it was like a pretty appropriate to like still stay true to the source material and how they set it up um, and then still sort of honor that, what seems like a romance, but I wanted to bring it up again because I wanted to ask you, because I have my own theory. Do you think it will be confirmed as romantic in good omens too? I do. Yeah. So I think that the parallels that they're drawing, yeah, the parallels they're drawing with Nina and um, uh, Maggie are evident to me. They're like, they're, they're showing these two people that don't necessarily see that there is like some attraction and other stuff going on. Maybe there's some, some obstacles in the way. I think we're going to get a parallel with, with our two main leads here, which I love. Like, I think that that was something that, that, uh, you know, a a massive section of the fan base wanted as well. So if it comes to fruition, I'd be, I'd be pretty, pretty stoked. So I also think that it can serve as the final sign of them going fully like fully embracing humanity mm-hmm. and saying like we're going to lean into the fact that this is a romantic love and that would be the most human thing they could do um yeah. and so i think you know if we're going to really put a bow on this thing and take it further that's the ultimate sign of humanity so i'm going to be a little disappointed if they don't confirm it honestly yeah. at this point I think we're I think we're leading to it. So I don't Seems I don't like know it. that we'll be we'll be disappointed. I you know you you're getting to see like Crowley try to understand love moment like the moment where he's trying to make it rain on them. To so get the funny! Awning oh my gosh! Just so get funny. him under just get him under an awning if it's yeah. raining. If it was raining, would you go under an awning? It's <laughs> you know, like so a really great. funny question. <laughs> uh, another just like great awesome like knowledge drop that Gaiman's doing throughout. Good Omen season two so far is the Jane Austen references. That's in the next episode. Do we want to let's let's get yeah. in the next episode. We've already touched on a lot of what's in let's there, but it. let's get into it. Yeah. So episode two is called The Clue. In 2500 BC, God sends Job horrific d- disasters intended to test Job's faith. Hell sends Crowley to carry out the destruction of everything Job loves. Aziraphale, feeling pity for him, is horrified by the prospect of destroying Job's children, and he and Crowley trick the angels into thinking that Job's children are dead. In reality, they are alive, but temporarily hidden in the form of lizards. Both Aziraphale and Crowley had to cover up their reemergence to Gabriel and the archangels with him by having Job's kids pose as some of the kids that God promised Job. Aziraphale feels great guilt for thwarting the will of God and wonders if he did the right thing. In the present, Aziraphale is visited by Michael, Uriel, and Sarakal upon tracing a miracle here. Beelzebub offers to drop the hostility towards Crowley in exchange for the information on where Gabriel is. Yeah, so this was my favorite of the three episodes we watched. 
I really liked the Job stuff. I thought it was it was very reminiscent of the kinds of little stories that we would get in the first season. Um, I, I like it whenever I get a chance to see them bust out some like really ostentatious costuming, especially yeah. for uh, Crowley. Yep. Um, you know, he he was so funny, and then like him being the the shoeite or whatever was really funny, and then that came back into play where he's the shoemaker from Shua. Uh, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the whole thing where he's like blasting all the goats and you can see it's at a point in their relation, a certain point in their relationship. Right. And he's like, you know, how can you do this? And then he sees that the, he's actually transformed them all into these crows. Um, and you just see like it's they're telling this love story because it, it, Zerophel gives him this look like he's, you know, falling in love with them. Like and that's well, just and something we see time and again. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, we saw that that little wing raise right at the start, too. Right. Like. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's definitely mutual between the two of them. You know, there's there's care there. Really touching stuff. Really funny too with uh, Gabriel and his. Um, I love the bit where it was like, I've seen a birth before. Yeah, I know how it works. And he's literally <laughs> talking about the Garden of Eden. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, and then the Zerophel brings it up. And he's like, well. Gabriel has seen a birth before in the Garden of Eden, so yeah. he knows how it goes. Let's show him again. Uh, yeah. And they get the ribs, yeah, the big giant ribs out. And he's like, "Yep, that looks right to me." <laughs> That's how it goes. Uh, yeah, he I, can come I was... out any age, and he's like, "Yes, confirmed." <laughs> yeah. And we're we're getting to see uh, Aziraphale get like lean into some of the the what humanity has to offer, like by eating that entire. Yeah. You know, all of see the him getting tempted, food. right? Because yeah. that's the other thing is he keeps getting tempted by Crowley. Yeah. And I do love that in the present, they are like both kind of banished from heaven and hell in ways. Like they're kind of like banished to earth. Well, they're which considered it, weird. They're like, yeah. they've gone native. They're like, they don't blend in anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I like seeing it too. And, and like, they're like enticing them back in ways. And they're like, why would we want anything but this? This is great. Um, so to talk about the story of Job and how fucking crazy that story yeah. is. I love that this uh, kind of highlights how fucking weird a lot of like Old Testament yeah. shit is. <laughs> it's it's brutal, man. And it's like, yeah. yeah, this makes a ton of great points about like, oh, so what's the reasoning here? Like, why are we going through the process? I just, of like, doing it's a bet. <laughs> Satan. Yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> I don't the, think it I, says that it's a bet, but I don't know. I haven't read the, the Old Testament in a long time. Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't it feels remember. like a, a, a certain interpretation of it. I but, think it yeah. kind of is, though. I think it's like a, you know. A test. It's definitely a test that it's they're, definitely they're trying a test. to see. So yeah. whether you consider that a bet or not, I think it is. Well, three kids are going to get murdered. We'll give them seven more. Yeah. Um, not no, no, not resurrecting the three that died is, uh, yeah, that's a pretty bizarre way to go about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we both have talked about openly in the podcast, like where we are, re- we are not religious people. Right. I was raised religious. I think you were as well. Same. And we yeah. both are no longer raised Catholic. Yeah, I was raised just christian so interesting uh, yeah. generic christian Method- methodist technically <laughs> methodist, but, yeah, yeah yeah i am now agnostic so <laughs> that's yes. uh good context for everybody when we're talking about this stuff so you know nothing against religious people inherently the system i have experienced and you know we'll move on from that uh so <laughs> what i wanted to talk about really though was um Gabriel in the library sorting books by the first letter of the first sentence yeah. and how we keep getting like huge drops of like not just Jane Austen but also like tons of other really really famous books we're seeing books on the shelves and I just love game and getting getting to highlight some of these works definitely an author playing a little bit yeah. there yeah like figuring out who he can include yeah um, and, and we get the other this... thing is like I didn't I didn't confirm but we saw a bit of the shelf that has all these books lined up and we saw a bunch of titles I assume he actually figured out these books all start with the letter I I and thought put so them too. in that order too you know yeah I thought so too and I noticed some some 
there were some really cool ones in there like 1984 and there's mm-hmm. there's just some great books that are all lined up there um things we need to mention right here though jane austen uh, pride and prejudice is being read at the be- yep. like the beginning of pride and prejudice one of our past projects yeah put back on the shelf and then uh, Gabriel pulls another book off, starts reading it, and it's the opening line of Good Omens. It was a nice day. So uh, I think that that's pretty cool because that's like, so I was wondering if Gabriel was going to read that whole book and like hear his name mentioned and be like, wait, yeah. is this all of what's going on here? I think that might have just been a little bit of an Easter egg. but It probably yeah, was. was. Yeah. It was a really emotional moment, too, if you caught it, because it was like the the score rises some. And I think it's a moment for Terry. I think it's like a moment for for them to talk about like. I mean, it's such a nice sentiment, too. It was a really yeah. nice day to start a book that's about, like, this huge, you know, massive apocalypse story. But ultimately, like, what makes it so charming and to, like, have that moment for him to read it. And I think I think John Hamm's uh, Gabriel says something along the lines of, like, now this is more like it or this is yeah. now this is the good start to the book. And he, like, puts it back. Uh, <laughs> I just thought that we had to mention that one. Um, and then Jane Austen. I think he might be seeding in some of like Jane Austen's history that no, not anybody else knows about. It's either that or he's taking some massive liberties with like saying. Well, I mean, she was, he like, says that she was a spy and like a and a thief like and all this stuff. Like, yeah, is that? I assume that that's not real, but I don't think that's real. You know, but who knows? I think I don't that's know. Just... Crowley would know. I, I, you know, maybe Gaiman has some inside information. And then Crowley's about... like, oh, and she also wrote books. Man, oh, humans never cease to amaze me. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, I think it's honestly just speaking to how much of a badass Jane Austen was, which is definitely true. Totally, as we we talked about her, you know, biography and in, in our coverage of uh, Pride and Prejudice, um, mm-hmm. and then I think we maybe touched in again on Emma because we have done a couple Jane Austen books now. Yeah. And yes, I was delighted to to like get the references to some of that stuff now. Same, <laughs> always yeah. fun. Let's talk a little bit about like the the parts of heaven we've seen, the parts of hell we've seen. They do a good job of making hell seem like the DMV, but dirty and like nasty. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, you're <laughs> Which right. Is awesome. It's like everybody's uh, in lines everywhere. It seems like yeah. <laughs> heaven is like just like a boardroom or something. Just like a boardroom, a, yeah. With like All a view white. and stuff, and you're like, these are that's not my heaven, and I yeah. hope that hell is cooler than that. At least, like, I, I get why it would be torturing people, but... And in covering a book like this and a story like this in general, it being Neil Gaiman's, I could I was almost getting Sandman, like, mixed into some of the lore when I was trying to remember back to Good Omens, uh, some of the story. Because, like, some you know, I was like, wait, was, was Gwendolyn Christie Lucifer in this? Or was that, <laughs> you know, and then I'm remembering... No, apparently like, he, it was the voice of Benedict Cumberbatch. Was Satan? That's what you told me. He did the voice of Satan at some uh, point. Do I, do, did I mention who the voice of God was? Because I figured that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Francis McDermott. Yeah, which and, perfect, and they, perfect they got her back, I assume. Yes. Yeah. I didn't recognize it. But that was an interesting scene, right? Where she's talking to Job. And then there's something where he like reports that she says, uh, come back when you can make a whale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if you're going to criticize like, me, come back yeah. when you can make a whale. <laughs> God knows best, basically, is the, the idea behind God is that, so yeah. distant in this series, and so is Satan, honestly. Both of them seem very distant from everything. Totally. And, and maybe that, yeah. yeah, I assume that's by design. Their agents are kind of taking care of everything. It's Beelzebub, right. it's Gabriel, and then it's But like yeah, their agents don't Michael. know what they want. No, <laughs> so it just seems assuming. like their agents. Whereas, like, when we see the flashbacks with Aziraphale and Crowley, it seems like direct things that they're doing for Satan or God. You know what I mean? We're seeing, like, them or sent is it out. being passed down through heaven and being passed up through, yeah. like through through the, Maybe. the pipeline through the through, you know so I was yeah, thinking like the, the creation of the universe stuff like the yeah. which you know I don't know it doesn't really say uh, there is one moment at the end of this second episode where um, Aziraphale shows up on the beach and he's like defeated and he's like I've 
you know, I'm ready. Take me. Like he thinks he's going to become a demon now because he's because he's lied. Um, I think this is the first time he's lied. And uh, Crowley's like, I'm not going to tell anybody. It's fine. And this is, again, like a little bit of that, like eating away at their sort of principles. But I also like the reveal where uh, Crowley says, you know, or he had previously said it wasn't lonely when he described, you know, his existence to Xerophel. And Xerophel said, like, I thought you said it wasn't lonely. And he's like, well, I'm a demon, so I lie. I lied, yeah. Um, implying that it is lonely. Again, like, well, at least they have each other now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, more. there's always been plenty of fuel for this, but I, ju- I just feel like they're building that. And I hope that's what they're doing. Definitely. I, you know, I'm going to be really interested to see what they do with um, Nina and maggie going forward like their story is clearly not even close to finished we're gonna get to see them get together obviously like nina's in a toxic relationship they seem kind of right for each other um and i'm just curious like what role they'll play going forward and ultimately we don't know a ton because of just where we're at in the story like it's a mystery we don't have we have maybe some of the some of the clues but we don't have the sort of overarching themes So it'll be cool to see like where everybody ends up. Yeah, and one general observation is that it feels like they are focusing more of the show just on Aziraphale and Crowley in a way that one of the criticisms I had of the first season when I listened back to our coverage was I felt like we spent a lot of time with a lot of side characters and I wanted to spend more time with our main two. And it feels like in season two, they're like, well, this is going to be mostly about them. We'll get a little bit of side characters here or there, but like it, it, the focus has been on these two. And I appreciate that because that, that definitely is the draw of the show to me. Totally the draw of the show. The, the And these two performers in these roles, they're, these are like career-defining roles in my opinion. Like these, these I I will not, in the same way that I think of David Tennant as the 10th Doctor, I'm going to continue to think of him as Crowley. Yeah. Same thing for for Sheen as Aziraphale. Like they, Absolutely. I, I will always have this as a point of reference and they're just doing such a great job and they're so entertaining um, and their chemistry too, like the bickering that they have. And then some of the times when they're on the same side, it's so satisfying when you see yeah. them sort of like team up together and it's kind of them against the world and by default, heaven and hell. Uh, I love it. It's so cool to see. So moving into episode three, it's called, I know where I'm going. Heaven sends a junior angel, Muriel, who tries to blend in as a human constable. The pair trick Muriel into believing that Aziraphale enchanted a human woman into falling in love. In 19th century Edinburgh, Crowley and Aziraphale chance upon a poor girl, Elspeth, who robs graves and sells the corpses to doctors to make money to support herself and her friend Morag. Aziraphale believes this is wrong, and Crowley argues that the circumstances of Elspeth's life have pushed her to do bad things, and thus she cannot be judged harshly for trying to survive. Aziraphale sabotages her. However, after speaking with the doctor, who explains that he buys corpses to better study how to treat living humans, he changes his mind about Elspeth's deeds. Elspeth, Morag, Crowley, and Aziraphale go to a graveyard to try to dig up another corpse, but Morag accidentally triggers a lethal trap and is killed. After selling Morag's corpse to a doctor, Elspeth tries to die by poison, but Crowley drinks it instead, getting drunk and encourages Elspeth to live a better life. In the present day, Aziraphale tries to investigate what happened to Gabriel. I would say he got high. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Uh, Off a laudanum, I think it was, or laudanum poison or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, this I mean, this is a fun episode. It it feels a little bit like one of those, like the ongoing adventures of these two. You know, there is some carryover to what's going on in present day, but it's like 
otherwise not super connected other than like the familiarity of the graveyard and like memories of what had been going on there. Um, I do like seeing again, a zero fail and how his, how he came to question. It seems like we're leading a lot to a zero fail and his questioning of, of heaven and how he um, is looking at these situations and going like, it's not that simple. Um, I love the, the reveal about how doctors in that time period did have to use bodies to practice on, to try and understand anatomy um, and how they had to resort to the, resort to these methods because it was illegal to do that. But, and it was in this like in service of, um, you know, trying to further medical knowledge. And we talked about this specifically in Frankenstein because that's where a lot of that comes from. Right. That was like the practice had me, of the time. It had me thinking a lot about like where we are as a society and the fact that there are people who are like anti-science in some ways and very holistic to the point that they're kind of going against what, centuries of people like risk their lives and their reputations to to gather this information and now people are just turning their backs on it in in really dumb ways uh yeah. it had me thinking a lot about that just because yeah the, the what like they're talking about like people were robbing graves just to get cadavers to work on them and and the, the idea of um they give he gives like a jar to a zero fail at one point the doctor does and it's like he's like this is a tumor from like a young boy that i couldn't save and in the way yeah. that like these are the kind of medical things that that had to be sorted out to get to where we are today so you know there's a reason for a lot of the things that we do and it's like tried and true some people live some hard lives so that we could we could have yeah the, you know the, the, well zero fail has a pretty horrible take on the whole thing at first where he's like no it doesn't matter if they're poor they just have a greater chance to yep you know, to rise above and show their worth. And it's like, well, oh. that's a take more on more on, you know, class with religion, yeah. with regard to religion. And that's a whole interesting topic. In and well, in morality and like what yeah. people what I mean, that he, I think Crowley and, and the show is making a point about what poverty does to people and how it drives people to do yeah. certain things. Well, and how I just the, the it's so like eye rolling where you get a zero fails point of view, which is this sort of religious, like yeah. traditional religious point of view, which is, is they have more opportunities to do the right thing. And you're like, yeah. that's just like, OK, great. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, I, I think the show really shows how like ridiculous that is. Um, and, 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 and he learns um, yeah. this is also coinciding with uh, a, a zero fail getting Crowley's car. Mm -hmm. which was a funny little bit where he turns it yellow and he's like playing fun music and then yep. Crowley like calls him all mad. And he's like, what are you doing? I could feel you driving my car under the speed limit. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Neil Gaiman does this thing where like, it's, it's like within the bounds of your imagination, but he figured it out. Like these kinds of scenes, of course, these characters would have this sort of back and forth. He doesn't want to drive Crowley's car because it's going to drive it at a hundred miles an hour and get there really fast. He wants to drive it because he had, he got a license a couple hundred years ago or whatever. And, yeah. it, you know, I love that it becomes like a reflection of him. It's like yellow with the, the, the snacks, the the snacks <laughs> for the road and everything. It's just it very it's really fun. And, uh, you know, there's this whole he has he's, he has the bit in the graveyard where he's confronted and then he fixes the, the guy's phone. Um, there's just a lot of little funny bits. Um, but overall, this was like one of the shorter episodes and it didn't feel like it moved the plot much. Um, we find out one bit of information, and that's he goes to the actual pub and he finds out that Gabriel was there at some point and is connected to this um to this lodge of masons or the Freemasons is what I'm interpreting that as so so you think that fr from what I gather, Gabriel met with somebody in a different organization or in that organization? 
I think he the the bartender, if he's to be, be believed, said that well, he assumed that he was a member of the Freemasons, and yeah. he was meeting with some other members of the Freemasons. Now, maybe he was misinterpreting who they were. That's possible. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, curious if we're going to get some like Freemason stuff. If that yeah. makes it into here, I'll be interested to see. The uh, the records all turning to um, shoot. I can't remember the name of the song right now. I could sing Every it. Day, but... it's a getting closer. Uh, yeah, whatever whatever that song is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, stuck in your head if you hear it enough times. <laughs> it's a great song. Uh, but between the like every record in the machine is turning to that, so that's obviously yeah. a huge clue. Uh, Azirfield like has kind of bridged that all together, and now. an ominous clue, right? Yeah, that sounds like a countdown. <laughs> yep. to me, totally. Yeah. And uh, the way that we talked about it back in season one coverage, but Queen plays a big part in, yeah. in this. It still says special thanks to Queen at yeah. the end of every episode. Yeah, which is great. And I love the, that Queen is still making an appearance. And I think that was a book detail as well that they carried over into yeah, the like, show. Yeah, uh, there was something about like music and Queen and yeah. Yeah, I can't remember exactly Crowley specifically, I think, liked Queen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just who doesn't like Queen? It's cool to hear them yeah. in the show. And it, I think notoriously hard to get uh, the rights to in, in your work in future yeah. films and, and TV shows. Um, yeah, so then like the Elspeth and the way that, that Crowley becomes like a giant and is like commanding her yeah. to like not kill herself. They give her money. I thought maybe she was going to open the bar with the money. And that was like how oh. it was all going to tie back together. I don't maybe think we'll that's we'll find really out she did at some point. Maybe. Um, everybody calls everybody we, which I think we is just Ed- Edinburgh in that time period, I think. Uh, Scotland. David Tennant is Scottish. So I think that that was a way for them to tie his homeland into the into the, mm. the fabric of this story. Um, I'm but yeah, so they're going calling... to Glasgow or Glasgow, however you say it, next year. So you are? hopefully, I'll, I'll get, yeah. That's awesome. Hope, that's yeah. the plan. I mean, fingers crossed. The plan is to go to Glasgow for uh, Worldcon 2024. Very cool. Well, you'll have to visit Edinburgh and then call people yeah. we, we, I'm not whoever. sure how far away the two are, but I mean, I would love to be able to get over to Edinburgh and see it. Yeah. One moment I wanted to point out was where uh, I, I think they call uh, Crowley Doctor uh, again quite prominently here, which I, I assume is another Doctor Who nod, right? What do you think, Doctor? And yeah, like, I think he turns right to Crowley and says that. That's a great point. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. catch that. That's awesome. <laughs> Just a couple of cool moments from this episode. I really enjoyed Muriel, this little angel who comes down. Like you said, who's like, I mean, I call her little. She's not little, but she's like cute. She's like just like a fish out of water. She thinks she's doing this great job at her disguise. And she's like, I'm a constable. And then they're like, are you or are you a sergeant? And she's like, I'm Sergeant Constable. And Mm -hmm. um, that's what she goes by. And like just the the way Aziraphale and Crowley are playing with her is very funny to me. Yeah. and yeah, she's there in her like all white version of of the the cop outfit, and she's there to investigate the miracle. Um, I I'd be curious to see some more with this character because I thought she was she was fun. I liked seeing her as well. Like I said, I think that's her. That's the we finally get another angel who's not like inherently a dick. So that's yeah, cool you're to right. See. She's she's actually a likable one. <laughs> yeah, and we get a few of those every now and then. There's some hints about this this uh, new uh, new demon. I think her name's Shax. She has mm-hmm. some funny interactions with Crowley where she's like trying to like get the get, get the furnace working. Is she like living in his flat or something? Is that the implication? Yeah, I think she's taken over like his role on earth and stuff. So yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to yeah, to see see their interactions is fun. I'll be curious to see more of that. I like that I, we're we have a few side characters and we're like coming back to them. Because one of the things that the first book does and the first show does, it's like it introduces new characters in like every freaking episode. 
and there's by the end there's a million like there's a huge cast um mm-hmm. and so i think it's smarter like if you're going into it knowing it's going to be a season of television to like condense a little bit focus a little more spend a little more time with like a fewer number of side characters yeah i i've just been really happy with this so far i've been fine i find myself smiling through the episodes i laugh a lot i'm just giddy when i get to see azir phil and crowley like sort of interact in ways so i yeah I've really been enjoying this and I'm excited. It's hard to speculate. I was going to say maybe we speculate, but we kind of have been this whole episode. Um, you know, I think we're going to see, we've talked about many of the things, but I think we're going to see Aziraphale and Crowley sort of solidify their relationship. I think I we're going to so. see same thing with uh, Nina and Maggie. I think we're going to see, and somehow that's going to affect the plot as well. Yeah. And, uh, right, and our official know. prediction is that there's something with Beelzebub and Mike and uh, Gabriel. I think that's, Probably maybe. has some some water. Because that fly yeah, hold some water. Maybe that was who they're going to find out that Gabriel was meeting with uh, Beelzebub. Yeah, I particularly I like the moments where Gabriel. There could be way, another like, whole goes... element or faction we haven't yet, like met yet, or it's like someone from before who's going to get brought back. I could yeah. see a couple of familiar faces cropping back up again. I think there's room for that still. Yeah, I like the moments when Gabriel uh, like goes it back. He like his eyes turn purple and he kind of yeah. like gives a quote from from previous his previous self kind of well they um, said that he said words that is what god originally said like mm. i was there when like something something like we're talking about the dawn of time and apparently that was like a quote from god that gabriel was saying is that a clue in some fashion why is gabriel quoting god yeah i don't know i don't know maybe maybe gabriel had a direct communication with god of some kind and that like has somehow blown his mind up maybe well, and Job like could barely, and I don't know if it's just because he's a human and we have feeble minds, but Job like barely could hear what God was yeah, saying. Yeah, he was like, yeah, and then also funny. when when Aziraphale and and Crowley were like listening, it sounded like garbled and like we un, like unintelligible. Yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah. also something to think about. Yeah, really interesting, man. Yeah, it's hard to predict anything beyond that. I, you know, I, yeah, we've already predicted what we can. So I think it's where we're going to leave these first three episodes. Um, you know, I'm excited for the next three. I'm uh, as as you are listening to this, if you're listening to it on the day it comes out, I'm currently at the Futurescapes workshop, which is actually a virtual workshop. So I'm not anywhere other than here, but I'm attending it virtually and it's um, pretty intensive as far as like time. So I'm pretty busy with this. So it ended up working out that we were kind of covering a show not reading anything at the moment and keeping it kind of light, keeping these episodes kind of short. Um, if you like the idea of us also returning to a, a, another a project from the past, we're going to be doing something similar later this year with Dune. Um, I'm excited to see Dune too, and that'll be another chance for us to revisit a project that we've already sort of put somewhat of a bow on and see how, how it is continued. Um, so yeah, I think that'd be super fun. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and our coverage of Good Omens, uh, you know, it, it, maybe you forgot to leave us a rating and review last time. Now's your chance. Leave us a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. If you're on YouTube, um, thank you for checking out our video version of this uh, podcast, which we're now releasing full video. Um, make sure to like the video and subscribe and try and get us up to a thousand subscribers so that we can actually click that little monetization button on YouTube. That would be fun to do. Yeah. And uh, make sure to follow us on all social media platforms. Facebook, Twitter is what I'm going to continue to call it. And Instagram. We're also on TikTok. And like Luke said, we're on YouTube. Check out our YouTube shorts, our full episodes. Um, and engage with us on there. We we like to hear what you have to say. So this is kind of a give and take. So yeah, definitely let us know what you think. 
And if you'd like to support this podcast in another way, we do have a Patreon, which we just released another bonus episode on. And that was our uh, coverage of the 2023 version of Mario, the Super Mario Brothers film that just came out. Um, we had covered the 90s one just a few months ago, and now we're covering this one. We get to compare the two, uh, talk about what worked for us and what didn't. Um, it was it was a fun little episode, and uh, we have that, and also the ability to vote on future projects. So check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash inktofilm, and we'd love to have your support. And thank you to Jeremy Blake for the use of our intro and outro music. It's the track Heaven and Hell. All right, that's going to be it for this week, and we'll be back to finally put our final bow on Good Omens and see how it all wraps up. Uh, I'm both excited and a little bit like worried and a little bit um, emotional feeling about it, but um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's possible we get a season three. So, you know, if that does happen, maybe we will return, but. <laughs> I, I can't imagine, but I've been so wrong in the past that clearly that means nothing. But uh, we'll, let's revisit that question next week and we'll know more. All yeah. right, until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.